Turn in your Bibles, please, to the book of Hebrews, chapter 10. Book of Hebrews, chapter 10. We are now in the final section here, if you will, of the doctrinal section of the book of Hebrews. Hard to believe. I'm so very proud of you for the, in a righteous way, I hope, for the way that you have dug into these heavy theological issues uh, beyond just what I have been teaching you, but on your own as well. That's called spiritual growth, spiritual maturity, and that is what every pastor will see in the flock that God has given them to shepherd. So as we finish these last few verses this morning, and before we celebrate the Lord's Supper, it would behoove us to touch briefly again in the context of this last chapter. So if you have your notes in front of you, we're just going to run through these very quickly. We spent some time on them last week, so I just want to move through them. First of all, verses 1 and 2 of chapter 10. Old covenant sacrifices can never make perfect those who draw near. That word make perfect means to bring to completion or to fully accomplish. What exactly is it that those who draw near need in order to bring them to completion, in order to fully accomplish God's redemptive plan for them? They need to be sanctified, which means they need to be set apart and made holy. They need to be regenerated and need to be made a new creation in Christ. They need to be justified. They need to be declared not guilty. They need the complete Forgiveness of their sins. Then and only then can they be saved eternally and have eternal access to God. You've got to have all of those things. And that's what God would call perfect. That's what God would call complete. That's what God would say would mean when you have perfect salvation or your complete salvation. That was God's plan for you from the beginning. That you would be sanctified, that you would be regenerated, that you would be justified, that your sins would be forgiven you and removed from you as far as the east is from the west. So that you could have total access to God at all times, unhindered. You could come into his presence every time you bowed your head and prayed. You could come into the very throne room, the very presence of God. What an amazing thing that God has done for those of you who have trusted Christ as your Savior. Our text tells us the Old Covenant, the law, could never make us perfect. No matter how many animals were sacrificed, no matter how many ceremonies they went through, no matter how many rituals they did, no matter how many cleansings they went through, they could never have that accomplished. Never could have accomplished God's full plan of salvation for us. Verse 3, the Old Covenant sacrifices were really a constant reminder of man's sinfulness. Every time they made that march to go and to on the Day of Atonement, they were reminded that they were still in their sin, still in their sin, and then they carried that sin from that day forward. They could have been walking home from that ceremony, sinned again, and then back again next year. They carry that sin again and again. 
So the Old Testament worshipers would have just been reminded of their sin every time they repeated that, that ceremony. Verse 4, the blood of animals can never, can never bring about forgiveness of our sins. You cannot atone for your sins no matter how many ceremonies you, you attend, no matter how many rituals you go through, no matter how many candles you light, no matter how many things you give up for Lent, no matter how many times you raise your hand or walk the aisle. Those ceremonies are not what saves you. What saves you is your faith in the shed blood of Jesus Christ, washing you, cleansing you of all unrighteousness. Verse 4 tells us it is impossible. That's an absolute term. That means no way, no how, never, ever, ever could it ever happen. Verse 5 and 6 the cross was the will of God the Father. This isn't something that just happened. This isn't something that Jesus decided on the fly someday. This was determined in eternity past. The body that Jesus had was determined in eternity past. All of it. Every bit of it determined Verse 5 and 6 reminds us God derived no pleasure from the abundance of sacrifices they're offered because they could never take away sin. They could never do it. They could never make men perfect. They could never make men complete. They could never make men holy. They could never accomplish the Father's will of having all of his children in his presence forever. What, God, what gave God pleasure was obedience to his will, not the sacrifices. Only the perfect sacrifice given in perfect obedience by the Son could accomplish the perfect will of the Father. Verses 7 through 9, Jesus' obedience removed the ceremonial law forever. God takes away the ceremonial law with all of its animal sacrifices in the Old Covenant and replaces it with the New Covenant, which is established and accomplished through the Lord Jesus Christ. There is no other way by which men can be saved than through faith in the atoning work of the shed blood of Jesus Christ as the wages for your sin. Verse 10. Through the obedience of Jesus, we are sanctified, we are set apart, we are made holy once for all, or once for all time. Verse 11, just to remind us, the offering of those priests, the, re the repetition of those sacrifices could never take away sins. To demonstrate that, verses 12 and 13, Jesus offered the sacrifice for all time, and then he sat down. That's something those old covenant pri priests could never do. There weren't even any chairs or benches in there because their work never ended. Why? Because people were always in their sin. There's no need to make one more sacrifice on the altar of forgiveness of our sins because Jesus' one-time sacrifice was the perfect atonement for our sins. Remember what he said on the cross? It is finished. Complete. You cannot add anything to it. Verse 14, Jesus perfected for all time 
those who are sanctified. That perfection that he's talking about in verse 14 is about your perfect standing before God, your perfect access to God, your perfect righteousness before God, and the perfect forgiveness that you received the moment you were saved. Notice again, for by one offering he has brought us into God's presence for how long? Forever. Forever. One more time. Forever. There is no way that a believer can lose that forever forgiveness. Look now at verses 15 and 16 as we pick it up from there. Verse 15 and 16 in Hebrews chapter 10. And the Holy Spirit also testifies to us, for after saying, this is the covenant that I make with them, after those days, says the Lord, I will put my laws upon their heart, and on their mind, I will write them. Point number one, the Holy Spirit testifies of our regeneration. The Holy Spirit testifies of our regeneration. We are now given another testimony here to the truth of the perfect sacrifice of Christ. It is the testimony of the Holy Spirit. Now, you can often hear that term, the testimony of the Holy Spirit, the testimony of the Holy Spirit. Let me tell you what he's not talking about. He's not talking about some ooey-gooey, tingly feeling. When he's talking about the testimony of the Holy Spirit, he's talking about the testimony given in the pages of God's holy word. That's what he means when he says he's testifying to the truth and the veracity of that. You want to hear what the scriptures has to say? You want to hear from the Holy Spirit? Open up your Bible. Read God's holy word. God's spirit will illuminate the text. He will enlighten your eyes. He will strengthen your understanding. He will pierce you to the very heart and soul. You want to hear the Holy Spirit talking to you? You cannot do it with a closed Bible, my friends. Why does the author refer to the Holy Spirit at all? I mean, after all, there are very few references even to God the Father in this text so far. In the first ten chapters, it's almost entirety. The entirety of this epistle is almost all about Jesus Christ. Why now? Well, there are two reasons that he speaks of the work of the Holy Spirit here. The first is is that the Holy Spirit is the author of Scripture. Turn with me, if you will. Keep your place in Hebrews. Let me just remind you of a couple texts that you should know by heart. 2 Timothy 3.16. 2 Timothy 3.16. All Scripture. How much of Scripture? All scripture is inspired by God. That literally means God breathed or God breathed out and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness so that the man of God may be adequate, equipped for every good work. Now turn to 2 Peter chapter 1. 2 Peter chapter 1. So we're going to go back on the other side of Hebrews here. Then James, then 1 Peter, then 2 Peter. 
chapter 1, beginning in verse 19. So we have the prophetic word made for sure, to which you do well to pay attention, as to a lamp shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts. But know this, first of all, no prophecy of Scripture is a matter of one's own interpretation. For no prophecy was ever made by an act of human will, but rather by men moved by the Holy Spirit spoke from God. That word moved means carried along like the wind that supplies the, the movement that catches a sail. Men were carried along as if in a sailboat, if you will. They wrote down in their own words, in their own experiences, exactly what God wanted written down. He used their life, their experiences to write down exactly what God wanted written down. There's probably, so that's number one here, the, the Holy Spirit is the author of Scripture, an originator. Secondly, the work of the Holy Spirit we see in regeneration. So keep your place in Hebrews to go back to the Gospel of John. The Gospel of John, chapter 3. This is probably where it's, we talk about this the most, the, the work of the Holy Spirit and this idea of regeneration. There's probably no clearer example of this than John chapter 3. This is Jesus' meeting with Nicodemus. John chapter 3, verse 1. Now there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. And this man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you have come from God as a teacher. For no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with them. And Jesus answered and said to him, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Verse 4, Nicodemus said to him, How can a man be born when he is old? He cannot enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born. Can he? And Jesus answers, and Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of the water and the Spirit, he cannot enter into the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh. And that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. Do not be amazed that I said to you, you must be born again. That work of regeneration is what we're going to look at here in verse 16. So back now to your text in Hebrews chapter 10, verse 16. This is a passage from Jeremiah 31, verse 33. And verse 17 will be verse 34 of Jeremiah 31. The author of Hebrews has already cited this back in Hebrews chapter 8. This is a passage of scripture from Jeremiah about how God would put his laws into his people's minds and write them in their hearts under the new covenant. He now quotes that same passage again. Notice that it is God speaking here. I will make with them. This covenant, I will make with them. I will put my laws. I will write them. God is saying that a new covenant is coming that is far different than the one he made with Israel at Mount Sinai. 
When will this new covenant come? Notice in your text. After those days. After those days. What days? The days when God's anointed one, God's Messiah, the Lord Jesus Christ, would come into this world at the incarnation and willingly give his life through his atoning work on the cross so that all who believe will have eternal life. After those days, God says, I make a new covenant. What's different about this new covenant from the old covenant? Well, as we've looked at this entire epistle, and especially the last few chapters, the old covenants, the old rituals, the old ceremonies could never save anyone. No one was ever saved in the Old Testament by sacrificing a bull on an altar. Look again at this quotation from the New Covenant. What is God describing here? He is describing regeneration. One commentator wrote, Regeneration is when the life of God gets into the soul of a man. This is at the instant we become a new creature in Christ. And when old things have passed away, and behold, all things are new. It's at that moment. This is a work of God that happens internally. It happens in your heart and in your mind. The moment you believe in your heart that Jesus Christ is Lord. This is not some superficial change in behavior. This change is at your very core. This is the one that pierces you to your very soul. This is a change that's not conforming yourself to the world. It is a transforming that can only happen through God. In the Old Testament, God wrote his law upon stone tablets so everybody could see those commandments and they were written by the finger of God. They were to be obeyed and they were, there were severe consequences for those that would willfully disobey those commandments that God had given. But the people did not follow them perfectly. And many times throughout the Old Testament we see where not only did they not follow God's commandments, but they willfully chose another God to worship rather than the true God. Why? Because their hearts were just as hard as those stone tablets that God's commands were written on. But under the new covenant, God does something different, doesn't he? This time God writes his laws not on stone tablets, but where? In their hearts. In their minds. Hearts of flesh internally, not on the hearts of stones the previous generation had demonstrated. And this time, with hearts of flesh given to them at the moment of salvation, the believer now fully embraces God's law in loving obedience. There's a real desire. There's a longing for God's word in their life. And now they seek to live a life that is glorifying to God, whereas before, they were only concerned about living a life that glorified themselves. Something has happened in the very soul of that person where old things have passed away and behold, all things are new. 
God not only transforms their hearts, he transforms their minds. There's the desire for God's word, and they read God's word, and as they do it, the text is illuminated. Their eyes are opened. They're enlightened by the Holy Spirit. There's an understanding where previously there was none. The scriptures now make sense to them. And their hearts have become enlightened. They truly understand now who they are in relationship to Almighty God. Where before they thought of themselves as a good person in comparison to others, they now see themselves as nothing more than a sinner saved by grace. My friends, if you're a true believer, what a wonderful work of grace the Lord Jesus did in your heart. If you have been saved for any amount of time now, I hope you're beginning to see more and more as you read your Bibles what God did in regeneration in your soul. You did not just wake up someday and said, you know, I think I'll recognize myself as a sinner today and be saved. Seems like a good day. I've got room on my schedule this coming Monday. No, that didn't, that's not what happened. You didn't wake up someday and just suddenly have the good sense that you're a sinner in need of a saver. No, you were awoken. You were awoken by God and he wrote his gospel message on your heart and on your mind and it touched you to your very core and everything else paled in comparison to the transforming moment of his grace as it pierced your soul. This should not surprise us because this is exactly what God said he would do. Keep your place here in Hebrews and turn with me, if you will, to the Old Testament Ezekiel. Chapter 36. Ezekiel chapter 36. Ezekiel 36. Beginning in verse 22. Therefore say to the house of Israel, Thus says the Lord God, It is not for your sake, O Israel, that I am about to act, but for my holy name, which you have profaned among the nations where you went. I will vindicate the holiness of my great name, which has been profaned among the nations, which you have profaned in their midst. Then the nations will know that I am the Lord, declares the Lord God when I prove myself holy among you in their sight. For I will take you from the nations, gather you from all the lands, and bring you into your own land, and then I will sprinkle clean water on you, and you will be clean, and I will cleanse you from all your filthiness and from all your idols. Moreover, I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit, where? Within you. And I will remove that heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes. And you will be careful to observe my ordinances. We're able to obey the new covenant because God has given us a new heart of flesh instead of stone. And he has placed his spirit within us. 
Even the obedience that you have now is from God. He is working in you and through you to accomplish his will. Despite our kicking and screaming and our own selfishness, God still moves in and through us to accomplish his perfect holy will. For believers, we're no longer under the bondage of sin. The shackles have been broken by God's amazing grace. The moment you surrendered your life to him and he wrote his gospel upon your hearts and your minds. Verse 17. Point number two. And their sins and their lawless deeds I will remember no more. Point number two. God chooses to remember your sins no more. God chooses to remember your sins no more. God's not remembering our sin does not mean that he's forgetful. But rather that he will not bring up our sins against us for judgment. They are totally forgiven because of God's amazing grace. What is that called when you're no longer found guilty? You are declared righteous. That is called justification. You are declared not guilty. Does it mean that you're not guilty? No. We are all guilty. All of sin and fall short of the glory of God. It means you're declared not guilty. Now, my friends, just for some theological clarification here, this does not mean that God forgets your sins, for it's impossible for God to forget anything. God is all-knowing, omniscient. He knows all things. He knows the possibility of all things. He knows the potentiality of all things. He knows all things eternally. He never forgets anything. What then does that mean when God says he'll remember your sins no more? It means he chooses to never use those sins against you judiciously. Never will they be brought before you to condemn you. God chooses to never use those to, against you to bring about your condemnation. God has, if you will, placed those sins behind his back, so to speak, and they will never be used against you to bring condemnation against you. It's as if every sin was listed on a chalkboard and God took a wet sponge and just wiped the board clean. The debt for your sin has been canceled. It was paid in full by the shed blood of Jesus Christ, the Lamb of God who took away the sin of the world. Romans 8.1 Therefore, there is no condemnation in those who are in Christ Jesus. So in this passage, the author of Hebrews is telling us that Christ brought about the realization of the new covenant he brought, a, he brought about sanctification. He set you apart, my friends. He made you holy. He regenerated you. He wrote his gospel on your heart and on your mind. And then he declared you not guilty. Wiped away that sin. Put it behind his back and said, never, ever will I accuse you. Never, never, ever will I bring that against you in any form of condemnation. 
Those sins that you committed previously are gone. You see, our whole hope for the Christian life is in Christ. What do we need to experience eternal life with God? We need to be sanctified. We need to be regenerated. We need to be justified. And we need complete and total forgiveness. That, my friends, is called perfect salvation. Or it's the perfect will of the Father for your salvation. Verse 18. Now, where there is forgiveness of these things, there is no longer any offering for sin. Point number three, there is no longer any offering for sin. The author tells us through the Holy Spirit that in Christ Jesus, full and final and perfect, complete forgiveness of sin has been achieved. Only through Christ could this have ever been obtained. Nothing but the blood of Jesus, my friends. Nothing but the blood of Jesus. Now there's not, that's not new news for you, for many of you who are sitting here today, is it? That you are cleansed, that you are saved by the shed blood of Jesus Christ. But the real question is not have you heard it before, but have you acted upon it in faith? That's the question. Hearing it is one thing. Acting upon it in faith is quite another. Flip back in there just a few pages to Hebrews chapter 4, beginning in verse 1. He just gets done finishing in chapter 3, talking about the failure of those who were wandering in the wilderness. And he says in verse 19, so we see that they were not able, to, verse 18, and to whom did he swear that they would not enter his rest, but those who were disobedient? What was their disobedience? We see they were not able to enter because of what? Unbelief. Unbelief. Therefore, let us fear if while a promise remains of entering his rest, any one of you may seem to have come Short of it. What does it mean? If you think you're too late, if you think, well, I've heard this all this time before and I've never acted on it, or I don't want to say that I've been saying that I'm saved, but I'm really not. The author of Hebrews is saying, it's never too late. As long as you have breath in your lungs, my friends, do not presume upon the grace of God. Surrender your life to him today. For indeed, we have had good news preached to us, just as they did also. Who's the they? Those who were disobedient in unbelief. What's the difference? The word that they heard did not profit them because it was not united by faith in those who heard. It's not just hearing. It's believing. Entire chapter 11 that we're going to get to someday is all about faith. All about faith. What a tremendous tragedy to not enter into God's rest. His perfect salvation. Because that's the only hope that we have in this world. 
If you want to worship God forever, if you want to glorify Him forever, if you want to have fellowship with God forever, if you want to live forever in His presence, nothing but the blood of Jesus will provide what you need. My friends, we can rest upon that truth for all eternity, on that one sacrifice for eternal salvation. It's done. Your sin is forgiven. He's telling them, don't go back to the temple and make more sacrifices. It's not needed. It's over. You have perfect, complete forgiveness. Why would you ever need to make another sacrifice for sin if your sin has already been forgiven forever? You just need to have faith in the one sacrifice of Jesus. The sacrifice of Christ is effective forever because it fulfills God's will. It replaces that old system. It sanctifies the believer. It regenerates the believer. It justifies the believer. It provides complete forgiveness for the believer. And it lasts forever for the believer. And lastly, it fulfills the promise of a new covenant. It's so perfect you can't add anything to it. All you need to do is believe. Now, my friends, how does that relate to the celebration of the Lord's Supper this morning? How does that tie in? We just read that we already have complete forgiveness forever. There's no longer any need for any offering for sin. Let me tell you, when we celebrate the Lord's Supper here this morning, that is not what we are doing here this morning. This is not some mystical ceremony where we are re-crucifying Christ so that we can have our sins forgiven. No, our text is quite clear. That is not the case. What we are doing here this morning is remembering the price that was paid for our sins once and for all time. This is a way for us to remember the magnitude of the offering of Christ on the cross on your behalf and on mine. So as we prepare our hearts this morning, it is done with a heart that is filled with gratitude. Dr. MacArthur says it this way. What a special privilege we have who live on this side of the cross. Because the prophets searched out the things that they were being told to see what a person and what time these things might come to pass. And here are we, after all these centuries prior to the time of Christ, living in the glories of having been after the cross. And not needing to look forward to something we cannot see but able to look back at something that is crystal clear. End quote. We are commanded in his word to come to the Lord's table with a sense of gratitude for the perfect sacrifice that attained for us something you could never obtain for yourself, my friends. It sanctifies us, it regenerated us, it justified us, it provides complete forgiveness for us, and it saves us forever. And it's on that profound truth that we prepare our hearts this morning. We ask the men to come forward.